0: John continues uh, to introduce to the reader, to the church in every age, to the early church to whom he was writing and even to us today, how we are to think of the rule and reign of Christ from heaven, in heaven and on earth, in an ever-increasing way as we pray every Lord's Day evening, as you ought to pray even in your own prayer times when you are alone or with your family, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are asking that Christ would do that which He alone is able to do and can do and is doing and will continue to do even until the end of the age, and that is to bring His kingdom that is in heaven on earth as it is in heaven. And what that looks like, Many Christians have different ideas. I think you will know by the end of this book exactly how I think about it and how I want you to think about it. But where does it begin? Where does that time of Christ's rule begin? And reign begin. Now, in our own country, every four years we have the election for the president of the United States. It happens in November. The count is taken. Sometimes the count takes a little longer than others, as it did this past year. But by June, the count was finished, and we didn't have Coronation Day because we're not a monarchy, at least on paper, uh, though I think oftentimes we look at it more as a monarchy than we ought to. But the inauguration, it is the beginning of that president's time in office and it's a big fanfare, everybody is there, Uh, pop stars are even there now and all of it is to establish, whether we like it or not, this is now the beginning of my rule and reign. In a monarchy, that day is called the coronation day. It is the day in which the king, or queen here, the king is crowned and given the seat of honor and authority and power. Uh, Children, if you don't know what that looks like, just go to some of the old, even black and white, or even the coronation of Queen Elizabeth, which could almost have been in black and white. She's been ruling now for so long. The coronation of the one who rules the kingdom. Revelation 1, 7, and 8 is that. It is the coronation day of King Jesus. And that is what I want to look at. When did it happen? And what is its effect on the kingdom itself? Two points, then, that I want to make. First, Christ ascended. Second, Christ upon the throne. Christ ascended and Christ upon the throne. Now, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you that verse 7 of Revelation chapter 1 is a description of the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you have the ESV study Bible, or many other study Bibles, or many even other commentaries, I want you to know that I am taking a position that is, in some fashion, the minority position among many commentators. I'm okay with that. I think I'm right. I think they're wrong. Now, I think I'm right and I think they're wrong with this caveat. I endeavor to be humble in my opinions, but the reason I feel like verse 7 of Revelation chapter 1 is a description of the coronation is because it is the same exact language of Daniel chapter 7 and Zechariah chapter 31, or I'm sorry, chapter 12 and Jeremiah chapter 31. It is the language of the son coming to the Father, and the Father giving the Son a throne. And Christ does not wait to be king. He is king. In fact, already we have read of the language of, to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood, this is Christ. And then earlier in verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who was and is and is to come. We see a Trinitarian context of divine benediction and blessing that comes on this coronation day. It's Psalm 45. It's Daniel chapter 7. It's the day in which the Father gives to the Son the throne. And so, if we look at Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 13, I saw, Daniel says, in the night visions or dreams, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. What I'm asking you to do is interpret Scripture with Scripture, And look at the same or common theme of Christ in the clouds being given honor. When does that happen? Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 occurs on coronation day. It is coronation day. And not only is it a coronation day, it is a wedding day. It is a day in which Christ ascends into the heavens bodily, and takes the throne given to him by the Father, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, because he has earned it through his obedience even to death, and is therefore exalted to the place that at the name of Christ Jesus, that name that is above all names, every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. This is the reward that Christ has already reaped because of his obedience. This is the Ancient of Days, the Father, giving to the One who is like a Son of Man, the Christ, kingdom rule. In fact, Jesus speaks of it Himself. He says in Matthew chapter 26, But Jesus kept silent. He's about to speak. And the high priest said to Him, I put you under oath by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And this is what Jesus said. You yourself said it. Nevertheless, I tell you, Hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and the coming on the clouds of heaven. Mark also records those same exact words in chapter 14, verse 62. Jesus is saying that the sign that the church will be given that Jesus is the Christ is His exaltation in His ascension. Jesus is looking beyond His death burial and He is looking towards His Resurrection and ascension. Jesus is saying, I am the one who will be raised and ascended on high. And that is what John is describing. Behold, John says, he is coming with the clouds. Now, many of you, when you read this, what are you thinking? Okay, this must refer to Christ's second coming. And there are portions of Revelation that do that, but we're nowhere near those portions yet. That's later in the book. For now, what John is continuing to describe is the exalted Christ and the beginning of His reign. He must be on the throne before John describes Him coming from the throne. We need to put Christ in heaven before we see Christ coming from heaven. There is an order to it. And the reason why that is important is because there is a kingdom eschatological reality that is now, that is already. So what is Christ going to? He is going to, in the clouds, His throne. He is ascending in majestic victory. It's the opposite of what the shepherds saw in Bethlehem. When Jesus was born and the skies were torn open and the angels appeared to those shepherds and they exalted that Christ was born. He has come. Christ is now going home. And the disciples don't understand the full weight of what they saw. We only know that in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, they were going, Whoa, what is happening? Why were they looking up? Well, you didn't see a lot of flying things, right, in the first century. You saw birds. Now we, especially on the west side of the airport, we see a lot of flying things. We don't see any flying people, though, do we? I I drove up actually this morning, and, and I pull in, and I saw the top of the roof of the, what do we call that, unfinished room or the game room, and there's rocks up there. I'm thinking, those rocks didn't put themselves up there. How did they get up there? And I thought, oh, we have a lot of kids at our church. I bet someone has taken rocks and said, I mean, this is something I would do. Let's see how many I can get on the roof. They're looking up at Christ. And it's not just this miracle of the man who is ascending, for which they have a picture, obviously, in the Old Testament. We think of Elijah and others who went to be with the Lord. And they see Christ going up. But what they see is not just a man levitating, they see Christ entering into that place that is otherworldly. And so the angel who's standing, he comes and stands beside and he says, What are you? What are you looking at? And he says, You've got a job to do. Get to work. The angel appears to the apostles and he says, now is the time to live in light of that ascended reality. And the disciples, like we, are coming to terms with what that means. But what it means is this. He's not referring to the day of Christ's second coming. Now that's not me saying there is no second coming, or that the second coming will not be glorious I'm saying John is referring to Christ's ascension. He's referring to, in verse 7, his coronation day and what falls out from that coronation. When the king takes the throne, things change. And what is described next is the great following epoch in the history of the church. And so verse 7, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail or mourn on account of Him. Even so, John says, let it be true. Now what John is describing is the, the beginning of the quality of the days between Christ's first and second coming. Those days will be categorized in this way. Christ is now upon the throne. Maybe that should have been the name of the title of the series, because I've said it 20 times if I've said it once. Christ is on the throne. Christ is on the throne. And this exaltation of Christ is where the power comes from. And that even as Christ has ascended, Christ also said to his disciples, soon to be apostles, and to the church, I am sending to you a helper. And who is that helper? It is the Holy Spirit. And he will come, Christ says, and he will convict of sins. And what does that conviction of sins look like? Oh. Heartburn. Heartburn. Now, we'll get to that in a little bit. But we're not waiting for a future glory. I think oftentimes the church has this opinion of themselves that they are to be the little building in the corner. While all the world does what the world is doing, we're just going to sit back and we're going to bide our time and we're going to watch it all go to pot and we're just going to sit here and wait. What kind of kingdom is that? What kind of perspective is that? My point to you is this. If Christ is upon the throne, if Christ has defeated death and hell, if Christ has sent forth His apostles with the gospel of grace into the world, then the expectation as it relates to the kingdom is global takeover and dominion. And here is something that the church doesn't know that Satan knows better than most Christians. Christ's kingdom has no end. And there is a reason why when men take power in nations who are godless and Christ-haters, they come after the church first. And do you know why that is? Why is that? It's because those who are set free in Christ Jesus are the only ones who are a threat to human power and authority and see it for what it is. It is under the authority of Christ Jesus. The kingdom of darkness cannot abide the kingdom of light. And there are many ways in which that is manifested. But oftentimes the church just thinks, if I can just make it to the end, no. Christ has all authority. The kingdom of Christ is a dominion-taking kingdom. And the vision that John would have us see, even when we are suffered or suffering, our suffering is brought against us, even when we are persecuted, even when we experience the pain of walking with Christ, and the world is bringing persecution against us, that it is even by the suffering of the saints that we are identified with Christ Jesus, His power is made perfect in our weakness. It is a vision of Christ moving to the throne seated upon the throne, ruling upon the throne, so that this becomes our perspective. We are no longer those who ought to see ourselves as waiting for the inevitable. We ought to see ourselves as instruments of the inevitable. The reason why the church has often suffered in this world is because we have failed in our dominion taking mandate. Part of it is unfaithfulness, part of it is judgment. But Christ is not waiting... This coronation day is important for us because it shows us the it shows us the the commencement of Christ's rule. And if Christ is on the throne, then He's doing something. Even we, who are often heartbroken over the promises that our elected officials make to us, we expect that when that day of inauguration comes, you better start doing what you told us you will do, right? And what has Christ said He would do? that all the tribes of earth will be broken as a result of his kingship. And he will do this. Now, it may be a hard-won victory for those who suffer, but there is victory nonetheless. We may be longing, but we ought not to be those who are waiting. And when I say waiting, I do mean... There is a sense by which we have to wait for the Lord to come, but I don't want you to think of waiting room kind of waiting. I want you to think of get busy waiting. That we are waiting in terms of the providence of God, but we're not sitting on our hands just waiting for it all to go to nothing. But to labor. For Christ says in John chapter 4, Look To the disciples, the fields are wide unto harvest. Are we in the field bringing in the harvest? Because God has foreordained in his providence, that there will be those who are brought into the church and there will be victory in that mission because Christ is upon the throne and the Spirit has been poured out into all the earth. This is the picture of Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Christ ascended. Now, what is the quality of those days of Christ upon the throne? Well, there is an effect in its scope. Look again at verse 7. All tribes of the earth will wail. Every eye will see him going back up just a little bit, even those who pierced him. Who are those who pierced Christ? For whom did Christ die? For those who are the elect. And where are the elect? What does the scripture say? Well, they are found in every tribe, tongue, and nation of earth. They are found everywhere, anywhere, throughout time and space. God has, in His divine decree of election, chosen whomever He will. And He has chosen you and me by His grace. And there are people who are not yet redeemed, that He has chosen that have not yet even been born. And they don't just speak English. They speak Mandarin and Swahili, that cooking language in Africa that's like a combination of Phonetic sounds, but I don't even, I don't even know where that, how did that came about. Places that you and I have never been. Food that you and I would never eat. Cultural trends that we would find repellent. Christ is through His gospel going forth into all of those places and He is transforming them. How? Because He is in heaven and He has poured out His Holy Spirit upon the earth and He is doing it. It is an earthwide global phenomenon that cannot be stopped. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. When you read Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, ask yourself this question. When I read that, what is the ceiling of Christ's exhibited authority on earth? Of the increase and of His government and peace, there will be no end. No end. We need to take the Bible at its word and stop judging the kingdom of Christ by what we merely see in our lifetimes. That is the bad kind of Christian nationalism that sees America as the last hope or any other nation for that matter. I'm calling you to see that it is far more than Christian nationalism. It is Christian globalism. And I don't mean the OPC or any particular denomination. I am talking about that there is coming a time when every nation will confess that the one they put to death is in fact the one who will redeem them. And can you imagine such a mistake? All the ends of the world shall rejoice. Psalm 22. Isaiah 45. The offspring of Israel will spread throughout all the earth. And the way in which we know that that is true is because there are people even today and they hear the gospel and the effect that our shorter catechism calls repentance unto life. That whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God. That is what John is talking about. That we receive judgment in Christ. And can you remember that time or times when the gospel confronts your wickedness and it wounds you to your very soul? This is what John is referring to. There is a time coming with the clouds, or He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Christ upon the throne, and by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we will look, we killed the wrong man. But praise be to God, in His providence, the right man died. And because of His death, we will be brought to a place where we out of sight and sorrow for our sins are wounded unto life. The gospel will pierce our hearts. Zechariah 12, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him who may have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for the weeps over... uh, uh, for Hadad-Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves. And then it continues. Every family on earth will mourn because their hearts are broken over their sins. This is the effect of Christ upon the throne. And the faithful historical testimony to that is the day of Pentecost. Pentecost is what you get with an exalted Messiah. Jeremiah 31 For thus says the Lord, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob, and raise shouts for the chief of the nations, proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth. Among them the blind and the lame, the pregnant woman, and she who is in labor together. A great company they shall return here. With weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back and I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble, for I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. When was this commenced? On the day of Pentecost, which is a new covenant reality. You cannot have Pentecost without ascension. And from that time of Pentecost, the Spirit has never ceased to go out to the four corners of the earth. That is the kingdom of Christ today. And there will be many in Mao's China, in a one-state communist nation, where the church is growing by leaps and bounds because the Spirit does not respect the borders and boundaries of men. There is but one border and boundary the Spirit respects, and that is the decrees of the triune Lord. And Christ, who is upon the throne, is sending the Spirit out into the world, and what the Spirit is doing is testifying to what we see in verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. This is Jesus here, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. What happens is John moves from the title given to the Father, the Ancient of Days was and is and is to come. And what we see happening is, the Father takes the throne and puts it upon the head of the Son, and now the Son is the one who was and is to to come. That this is the one who is on the throne. Christ was wounded, but He is no longer suffering. He was pierced, and we shall see Him. The great, I mean, just practically speaking, if you are struggling with holiness in your life, remember Christ pierced upon the cross. And then what the resurrected, ascended Messiah will do by His Spirit is He will remind you why He was pierced, so that His entire church, His whole nation, might be redeemed. And so all of this must be seen in conjunction together. The incarnation, Christ humbled himself under the law. He lived under the law. He kept the law. He suffered under the law. He was crucified. He was dead and he was buried. The humiliation of Christ Jesus leads to his exaltation and it is the pattern of our own salvation. We mourn for Christ as those who have been given hearts broken over our sins. It is the wound that leads us to repentance. Christ suffering, but no longer. Here is the problem with the mass. And this is what John Owen pointed to many, many centuries ago. If Christ is always on the cross then he can never be the high priest who is in heaven. Christ has died, and that is over. And his death, once and for all, the book of Hebrews says, it is by his shed blood that he enters into that holy place, and now seated upon the throne in that holy of holies, Christ manifests the power and the glory and the beauty of his resurrection among his people. And so we come to Christ upon the cross, but that is the time in which we die We are no longer dead. We have been raised, even as Christ has been raised. And the one whom we see is not... Oftentimes what we do in the church is we try to put Christ in this box of a servant leader, this sort of weak. He meets with us. He does meet with us in our affirmities but He does so as the ascended throne sitter. But He can be two things and can do two things at once, guys. He can be the one who is seated on the throne and also meet with us in our weakness. But He doesn't meet within our, we- our weakness as one who is continuing to suffer. He meets with us by the Spirit as the one who is able to lift us out of that. He sympathizes with our weakness as the one who is the Alpha and the Omega. Now, what is the significance of that? Well, I would encourage you to read On the Incarnation by Athanasius. And in this book, Athanasius is establishing this theological idea that there is no one in heaven or on earth that could do what Christ did. We refer to that doctrinal idea as the absolute necessity of atonement. Now, what I mean is that there are those who have said, God could have redeemed us in another way, but He chose to do it through Christ. What the Scriptures teach us is that there is none other who can recreate other than the one who first created. Christ is that Creator. That it was not just because He was obedient to death, but because it was God who was obedient to death. I can be obedient to death for the sake of Christ Jesus. And many Christians have been. But none of their deaths have given them authority in heaven. Christ was given the crown because Christ is the eternal Alpha and Omega. The beginning and the end. He is the God-man who is our Redeemer. He is the one who meets with us. He is the one who has redeemed us. He is the one who comes and the Father with all joy gives to the Son the crown because He is worthy to wear it. Because He is the God-man. This is the one who is our King. Now the reason why that is important is this. Who can contend with such a King? in His goodness and His grace, but also in His transcendent power and glory. Who? So whom shall we fear? And of whom shall we be afraid? And which kingdom will endure forever? It is the kingdom of Christ. It is our kingdom. He is the Almighty. He is the Alpha and Omega. And He is your God. Let's pray. Our Lord our God,